Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Sunday, August 2nd, week 3 of 2020 fantasy baseball waivers in most leagues. Derek Van Riper here with Michael Beller each and every Sunday morning, breaking it all down. And it seems like it all is changing every day. And uh, even Saturday, we had another wave of job changes, mostly in the late innings. We had a few injuries, things that are really shaking things up as we get ready to make those fab bids here on Sunday night. Before we get started, I should remind everybody that if you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, you can get one for 40% off at theathletic.com slash podcast. It gets you all of our fantasy baseball coverage, fantasy football, team coverage, league coverage uh, for everything. we got the NBA back in the bubble in Orlando. We've got the NHL with the two-bubble system working really well as they have their uh, qualifying seating for uh, their postseason and then we have a baseball trying to just keep it afloat. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if there's still a season by this time next week. I feel better this morning than I did when we spoke two days ago. So I guess that's something, right? If you if you plotted how you feel about sports <laughs> every day this year, starting like March first, it would be the most erratic plot yeah. you could ever imagine. I mean, it would be like. Tyler Chatwood's command plotted over time, right? Just all over the road, mostly bad, but occasionally good. And uh, right. Chatwood's among the players we're going to talk about. But how's it going for you on this Sunday, Beller? Yes, yeah, spikes of good with mostly bad and an underlying sense of dread does sum up 2020 well, both uh, the world we've lived in and baseball. Um, but uh, I guess I feel better 48 hours uh, later than I did when we talked on Friday, too. So uh, we've got that going for us, to quote Carl Spackler. Yeah, it's early in the day, though, so <laughs> <laughs> we'll see as we record this a little after uh, ten fifteen Eastern on Sunday morning. I decided we should just group players by uh, role this week. We're going to hit starting pitchers first. We'll get to some closer situations in the middle of the show. We'll talk about bats because I think of the three groups, there are actually fewer interesting hitters to go after than there yeah. are pitchers overall. Uh, kind of the case many weeks, I think, in this shortened season because we've seen so many pitcher injuries. But let's talk about one of the, the fun stories of the week. Nate Pearson made his debut for the Blue Jays, pitched against the Nationals, five scoreless innings, five strikeouts, only a couple of hits. Um, had a couple of instances where he looked like a rookie. I think Adam Eaton had a pretty easy stolen base against him. But mm-hmm. all in all, very successful outing. And this is a guy that has great stuff, an 80-grade fastball, which at a minimum is always the foundation for someone who's going to dominate in a relief role for a long time. Pearson has secondaries that go with it. We saw the slider a lot on Wednesday night. He does have a curveball. He does have a changeup. Command is good, not great, but better than most for guys who are debuting. So I think it's easy to see why you'd want to go after Nate Pearson in a lot of leagues, but here's why I ran into a snag. I was working on this for the ads and drops column that'll go up later today. I don't know if I really want to use him in his next two starts because the Jays didn't have any games this weekend. If they put him in the back of their rotation order, he would go Friday in Boston against the Red Sox. Still a lineup that I fear a little bit. I mean, I, I don't necessarily want to throw a rookie in his second start at Fenway. That's that's not great. And he catches the Rays at home the following week. So if you're looking at this guy and saying, hey, these next two weeks, I'm not necessarily comfortable starting him. Should you really be pushing in a massive fad bid that 
based on talent alone, he deserves. Like this is a guy that if we mm-hmm. were playing a full twenty six week season, you'd say the schedule evens out and he's going to be okay. And there's enough there with strikeouts and potentially with ratios to justify it. I'm having a hard time going above twenty percent of my fab budget for Nate Peterson, and I'm even a little bit hesitant to do that just given the upcoming schedule. Yeah, I mean, if that's how you're looking at him, then it's not wise to push it all in and go above that 20% number that you mentioned. However, I will say that I don't think that's the way that you should be looking at him. I am totally comfortable running him out there in those two starts. And I will say that I tend to be a little bit more aggressive uh, than most when it comes to uh, looking at opponent. I guess I should say not looking at opponent, not caring too much, especially when we're talking about players of Pearson's quality. Um, if, if it were maybe the Yankees that he was going to catch in one of these two starts for back-to-back starts against the Yankees or you know the Yankees and the Braves, two teams like that, then maybe I would start to think about it. But even in that situation, I think that the talent uh, that Pearson has, everything that you talked about, is going to be the overriding factor for me here. And even if these turns end up being bad, I think you are still got a whole lot of good coming in Pearson over the next uh, couple of months here. And I don't think these two starts are necessarily going to be bad. This looks like a true front-of-the-rotation starter. So I I would be comfortable going higher than the 20%. I would treat him uh, the same way that we would if this were a typical 26-week season. And I think maybe what I need to do is ground my assessment of the Red Sox in reality. This is a team that, mm-hmm. through the first week and change of the season, has a 100 WRC+. plus. That is exactly league average. You know, They strike out just over 20% of the time, so they're, you know, they're not like a team you can't strike out. Pearson's pretty good at that. Mm-hmm. And in terms of run score, they're kind of in the middle of the pack, which is a little bit skewed, of course, because some teams have barely played. But they're not the team they were when they had Mookie Betts. That is a a fair statement, I think. It's almost more just being concerned about the road start. And then with the Rays, that is a team that is putting more runs on the board. Mm -hmm. They've been only 3% better than league average, though, in terms of WRC+. So my perception of the Rays is a little bit skewed based on how much I like that team and how talented I think they are and just how they mix and match so effectively. Um, so perhaps this is a case where Beller's right to be a little more aggressive <laughs> than me. But I think the other part of why I'm not going completely crazy with my Nate Pearson bid is because I'm bumping up my bids for Christian Javier. We saw Javier uh, pitch really well against the Dodgers in his debut as a starter in the big leagues. He made one relief appearance back on July 25th. Uh, and Javier does not light up the radar gun the way Nate Pearson can. He averaged 92.6 with his fastball in that first start. Didn't hold the velocity particularly well. I wonder how much of that can just be attributed to only going one inning in a relief appearance his previous timeout. So it's something that's worth keeping an eye on. The thing that keeps playing in my head over and over is Eno Saris on the Thursday rates and barrels describing the pitch comps for Christian Javier. Christian Javier has Corey Kluber's curveball and Justin Verlander's changeup. Like, those two secondaries, even if you don't have a great fastball, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a nice combination, right? Yeah. So that's a lot to work with. He's in an organization that we trust with pitching. The fastball's not terrible, even if it's not great. And the fact that he was already mixing three pitches as a starter gives me a little more hope. Like, Pearson was a little more like fastball slider. And again, those pitches mm-hmm. are awesome, so you can, you can do that if you're Nate Pearson. But I almost wonder if... Javier is just one step further along in his development. I think I'm also getting pulled in to the fact that Christian Javier is a two-star pitcher during the upcoming week, uh, lined up to go on the road and face a struggling Arizona offense, and then on the road to face the A's. So how far apart do you have these guys in terms of short-term value? I think if we're talking keeper and dynasty league, 
I'm Nate Pearson over Christian Javier and not really sweating it too much. But I think in redraft, I do think they could be almost equal in terms of bids. I think that Pearson's still the easy guy who I want here between these two, but I, I'm not looking at Javier as though he's some consolation prize, and I think I would maybe even still put the same bid amount on them because I want one of them. Uh, you know, I, I'm, this is like conditional, like a, you know, an if bid. If I don't get Pearson, then I will fall back to Javier and be happy about it. I mean, look at the guy's strikeout rates in the minors. I mean, these are some ridiculous numbers that the guy has put up uh, in 2019. As a 22-year-old, he split time between three levels. He pitched at high A, pitched at double A, pitched at triple A for Houston. Most of his time, 74 innings, the bulk of it was spent at double A. And he had a 39% strikeout rate there. I mean, that is outrageous. And then you go back to 2018 when he pitched at A ball and high A ball, uh, a 40.6% strikeout rate at A. And then he moves up to high A and it drops down to 26.3%. But then the next year... When he started out at high A, it jumped to 33.3%. I mean, I think we have to trust that this guy knows how to miss bats. I mean, we've just seen it over his entire pro career, still just 23 years old in this organization that has proved time and time and time again it gets the best out of its pitchers. I really like Javier. I still like Pearson better, but if I'm assuming I'm not getting both, I'm totally comfortable spending the same amount just to get one of them. Yeah, and I think at a minimum for Christian Javier, you're looking at 15% of a full budget and maybe a little bit more. Again, I think the, the two-start week is a big part of it, like the extra little nudge you get from that alone. Uh, but I think he's a fixture in this rotation unless he gives them a reason to make a change. They've been kind of stuck without a couple of guys in the last uh, couple of weeks since the Verlander injury. They've got Forrest Whitley apparently hurt at the alternative camp, or the alternate camp or the other camp or minor league <laughs> 2.0, whatever the heck we're going to call that all season. I, I don't like any of those names for it. Yeah. Um, so I do think this is more permanent. If you look a little further down the schedule, which I've been doing a lot, I've been looking at the schedule in 14-day blocks, even though everything's written on a dry erase board at this point. Mm-hmm. Christian Javier's next start after this two-start week would be home against Seattle, and I want that 10 times out of 10, even if the two-start week doesn't go particularly well, as long as he's still making that start against Seattle, I definitely want him for that too. So it's just sort of like the opposite situation of Pearson where the next 14 days schedule-wise looks so good and the strikeout rates that you mentioned are absolutely a part of why Christian Javier is getting a big bid from me uh, in pretty much any league where he's available. He was one of those guys that actually last weekend, because we record this so early on Sunday, he wasn't really high up on my radar. He was kind of a, a guy that I thought, well, if an opportunity, sure, that opportunity happened. We learned later in the day last Sunday that Justin Verlander was going to miss a lot of time with his arm injury. Because of that, I threw a couple of like $1 and $2 bids on Javier in some leagues, bid a little more in Keeper and Dynasty. So I got him a bunch of places. I got really lucky with the timing. I feel bad we didn't talk about him last week because kind of stealthily getting him ahead of what he did on Wednesday, I wouldn't have started him on Wednesday in those leagues. I didn't start him on Wednesday in most leagues. Uh, That absolutely gives you that upper hand that you're looking for. A lot of other interesting pitchers, though, and one that we've talked about a couple times in this show, kind of saying, how how risky do you want to be? How much do you really want to take a chance on your ratios getting blown up? And that comes from Tyler Chatwood. And in a weird way, I'm starting to feel like my belief that leaving Colorado and the Cubs signing him to that three-year deal, I, I thought he was going to be good from day one. I thought getting out of Coors would fix a lot of his problems. It didn't, of course. The walk rate was off the charts high. Two years ago, he was pretty good in the relief role, but really didn't start much last season for the Cubs. 
and he looks great these first two starts. It still comes with the typical command where he just misses his spot by a couple of feet here and there. That happens. That's part of what you get. But 19 strikeouts now and two starts after an 11K performance against the Pirates on Saturday night. Hasn't allowed a home run yet this season. Teams just haven't hit him all that much. And he was pitching well back in spring training 1.0 as well, which I think when you kind of Frankenstein those starts with what he's done through the first two that have counted this year, I'm increasingly interested in Tyler Chatwood. Does anything look different to you? The pitch mix, the release point? Is there anything you're seeing from him that gives you more faith in him now than you would have had a year or two years ago? I think that the command is just a little bit better. And as you said, you're going to still have those issues uh, with with Tyler Chatwood every now and again, but they have been so infrequent. Uh, Even if you go back to last year when he was a reliever, they've been so much more infrequent than when he was the, the, the guy who he was his first year with the Cubs that the command being this much better is allowing the stuff to breathe and allowing the stuff that he always had going back to Colorado uh, to to shine through. And you mentioned that you thought he was going to be a good player for this Cubs team right away, right from day one. You go back to that last year in Colorado, 2017, he had a 6.01 ERA and a 1.68 whip at home. You get him on the road, 3.49 ERA and a 1.23 whip. I mean, he really was a different pitcher in cores and away from cores, and now things are, things finally seem like he has harnessed them with the Cubs, and he is coming back and looking like that guy that a lot of people thought he was going to be immediately once the Cubs got him out of Colorado. I think there's a lot of reason to believe in him. I really do. And you mentioned going back to spring and how he was pitching well then. And for a lot of pitchers, maybe that's not going to mean too much, but I think it means a lot for him. When the the Cubs first got into spring training, they had four guys clearly in the rotation. In that fifth spot, there was some rumbling that maybe there was a battle between Alec Mills and Tyler Chatwood. And Chatwood pretty much put that battle to bed uh, almost from the get-go and secured himself a spot in the rotation. Obviously, with the Jose Quintana injury, both of them are in the rotation now. But it's important to remember that Tyler Chatwood ran away with this job within like two weeks of spring training beginning. And now we're really seeing everything come together for him. So, you know, he doesn't have the ceiling of Pearson and Javier, I don't think. Um, He doesn't have that excitement. So maybe you don't have a a bid quite so high on him as you do on the other two. But man, it's hard not to like him a whole lot after what he's done against the Brewers and the Pirates. And you can caveat the Pirates start all you want because it's the Pirates. But 11 strikeouts totally uh, controlling that lineup. It's still a major league lineup, and they couldn't do a thing against Chadwood last night. You have to feel very good about him for the future. Yeah, I think the thing that's catching my eye as I look at more pitch charts and different things he's been working on, it seems like the cutter usage has really been increased. So I think he's going more with movement on his fastballs as opposed to just trying to use heat to get past hitters. And I think that's made a big difference for Chatwood as well. I think it's part of what he was doing, I think, late last year in the bullpen as well when he was starting to have that success. He draws the Royals on the road in his next start too. So even if you don't really want to trust him long term, you could pick him up, use him against the Royals, take a wait-and-see approach. He's at Cleveland for his start after that the following week. So I could see that being a spot where maybe you're pretty careful with him, even if you like him. At Cleveland mm-hmm. is not a, a great place to have to to throw a back-end starter, but I'm definitely in for this start against the Royals. I think he's starting to make a believer out of me again after making a fool out of me. Knew you would do it eventually. <laughs> I'm talking like 4 to 5% of a fab budget. I think if sure. you want to make that end in a 7 or a 9 or something just to kind of push it to the higher end of that range, that could yeah. absolutely be enough to get it done in a lot of leagues. Because I still think there's um, kind of a, ew, David reaction to Tyler Chatwood. <laughs> um, 
Uh, is that a Schitt's Creek reference right there? Yeah. Uh, some other pitchers in this range, kind of under the 5% range. Taiwan Walker had a nice start. Uh, I think it was Friday night. He's doing things a bit differently, too. Doesn't have the great velocity that we saw from him before the injuries really derailed him. His return to Seattle, just kind of a nice story to see him maybe having a little success Mm -hmm. back with the organization that originally drafted him. (sighs) I don't know. The split finger is kind of a key pitch for him. It seems like that's working really well. He's almost becoming more of a a crafty veteran at this point, though. Mixing a lot of secondaries, relying a little bit more on weak contact, but... 435 ERA, 106 whip through a couple of starts, 10 innings, 9 Ks. What's your interest level in Taiwan Walker at this point, knowing that he's not quite the guy he was as a prospect, but he might be more polished and capable of getting through the lineup possibly a third time for this Seattle rotation? Crazy that it was a decade ago that he got drafted originally by the Mariners, and we were starting to get really excited about him pretty much right from the jump. I think the level, the interest level in Taiwan Walker is still that of a week-by-week stream. Maybe if I'm really pitching needy, which I'm sure a lot of us are uh, in fantasy leagues right now, I could see going after him as a guy who I'm targeting to stick in my rotation and stay on my team. But I think that the fact that he just doesn't have those eye-popping strikeout numbers or we shouldn't expect that from him anymore leads me down the road that he is more of a real-life value to the Mariners rather than a fantasy value to us. Without those big-time strikeout numbers and, you know, nine strikeouts and ten in a third inning, certainly not bad, but also nothing to write home about, nothing that's going to really get uh, too many people in fantasy uh, going after him in a significant way. I just don't think that he's going to have enough value. I don't trust that the ratios can hold up to prop up a you know good but not great or decent at best strikeout rate. So yeah, when he's got good turns coming, um, I could see going after him. I'm just not all that excited about him, even though I love the real-life story, and I do think that he can be a very valuable pitcher for the Mariners for the rest of the season. Yeah, I think if you are interested in Walker, it's probably a 15-team league or deeper. You could maybe Definitely. throw him at home. He's got the Angels at home. Mike Trout should be back from the paternity list by then. It doesn't sound like he's going to miss nearly as much time as uh, some of us had feared back during draft season 2.0. That Angels lineup, when everybody's healthy, is one that I don't want to mess with too much. But if I'm going to do it, it's going to be in a place like T-Mobile Field. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe a low bid, like 1% of the budget would be enough to get Walker and he might be on the roster this week, but then off the roster next week at Texas if you look a little further down the road. So that could work at the new ballpark in Arlington, mm-hmm. but isn't necessarily a lock. I think the biggest concern I have with Taiwan Walker right now in these first two starts, even though the results have been good and you know the K rates and walk rates are right in line with his career norms, only a 5.6% swing strike rate. Doesn't seem like he's fooling hitters right now, and we need to see some swinging strikes if we're going to have... Uh, an increase in trust in Taiwan Walker. But again, maybe a guy who's just kind of figuring it out without the the premium velocity that he once brought to the table. Uh, we saw the debut of Chris Bubich over the weekend. That was Friday night against the White Sox. I think Bubich is one of those guys that, in, in a keeper in Dynasty League, yeah, I'm picking him up and just kind of seeing what happens. But in redraft leagues, I want to be careful. I know... There's a ton of strikeout potential there. We saw that, but it was at A-ball last year. I mean, mm-hmm. low A and high A, 185 Ks and 149 and a third innings. Skipping double A and triple A is a tall order. And yes. he's a three-pitch lefty, doesn't rely a lot on velocity, does have pretty good command, ticks a lot of boxes. But you start looking at the schedule, 
He draws the Cubs at home on Wednesday. I don't want any part of that for a guy making his second start who's skipping over those two levels. And then he gets the Reds on the road the following week. So if you're going after Chris Bubich, be very careful. I would bring those bids down quite a bit unless we're talking about a multi-year format. Agree 100%. This is the perfect example of when you should be letting those uh, matchups influence not only how much you bid, but even if you bid. I love that the Royals are going for it in the, in the way that the Royals can go for it this season, right? I love that they're not holding anything back. Brady Singer in the rotation. Chris Bubich after pitching at high A as his highest level in the rotation at twenty eight year or twenty two years old. I love that they are doing this. I love that they're being this aggressive and getting these youngsters who could be part of the next good competitive Royals team this time in this you know sham of a twenty twenty season. I love that they're doing this, and I think it's going to pay dividends for them down the road. I just can't get excited about Bubich right now. I'll be following him closely, but even without those matchups against the Cubs and the Reds looming, I just wouldn't be able to generate all that much excitement for him. Not a ton of strikeouts uh, expectation for this season in the majors. Bad team, not going to have a lot of support behind him. Uh, It's hard for me to get too excited about him in the fantasy world, but very excited to watch him in real life the rest of the way. Let's talk about Daniel Ponce de Leon. He had a really tough draw as he entered the rotation for the Cardinals this week. He actually took the loss against Minnesota on Wednesday. Three runs on two hits. Uh, I think it was three walks. Struck out eight, though, in three and two-thirds innings. And and Ponce de Leon, if you go back and look at 2018 and 2019, when he's had limited chances to contribute for the Cardinals, he's provided a lot, at least good ratios, if not great ratios, when you go back to 2018. More strikeouts than you might expect for the stuff. Where do we go from here? I mean, this is a, a guy that I've never quite understood, and yet here he <laughs> is continuing to turn out these good results. He gets the Cubs at home Next time out, the Cardinals are going to have a four-game series over the span of three days against the Tigers before returning to St. Louis. You look a little further down the road, he draws the White Sox the following week on the road. We know that White Sox team, they can do some damage, but there's some swing and miss there. So kind of a, a feast or famine team to try and stream against. Any interest in Ponce de Leon? I think I'm on basically the same wavelength with him as I am with Taiwan Walker. Maybe I like Ponce de Leon a little bit more because we've seen him with this. I mean, this is who he is. This is who he's always been. And we know that he has a good handle on how to get out with the stuff that he brings to the mound, start in and start out. So maybe I feel just a little bit more comfortable that he knows who he is and he knows how to attack hitters with what he has. So I could see ticking those bids up a little bit from where I would be living with Taiwan Walker. Not the sort of guy who I'm going to you know, cry into my pillow about if I don't end up getting him in fab, though. I just can't see uh, there being a ton of long-term value. Another one of those guys who likely is going to make the most impact on your team if you are picking and choosing when you are deploying him. Yeah, I like him more for 15-plus team mixed leagues. Mm-hmm. 12s, he's on again, off again at most. I'm not adding him for that start against the Cubs. I think there's just a little too much that can go wrong in that matchup. Uh, We did see David Peterson debut with the Mets recently. I think he's just one of those innings eaters. I don't really see anything there to go after either. Uh, The broad brush sort of caveat we should throw out there, everything with schedules is a total nightmare (laughs) right now because six teams, of course, were paused over the weekend. So a lot of these rotations and matchups aren't even really confirmed because you have teams coming off of two or three days of inactivity and they might reset back to the beginning of the rotation where possible, throw the ace for an extra start and might 
keep things right on the schedule the way they normally were before they were paused. We, we don't know mm-hmm. in many of these cases. So a lot of this is projected starters. Uh, we lean, of course, pretty heavily on our friends at Rotowire. Their projected starters tool is uh, one of the absolute best around. Let's talk about some closers. Going back to the north side of Chicago, Rowan Wick gets a big save for the Cubs. We wondered if Craig Kimbrell was on thin ice going into the weekend. Another rough outing for him on Friday. That may have been the last one, right? I, I kind of hinted at him maybe being one bad outing away mm-hmm. from finally losing his hold on the closer role. I guess David Ross was non-committal on Saturday when he was asked about whether or not Kimbrell was still the closer. And we may have got our answer with Rowan Wick getting a save. And I think that was the other part of this question was, well, okay, if Kimbrell loses the job, is it Wick or is it Jeremy Jeffress? Wick, I think, was the slightly better option, even though J.J. has had a lot of recent success. And maybe it ends up being a committee. I mean, that could easily be the solution they go with. But having seen how it played out over the first two days of this weekend, what's your strategy going into Sunday night if you're looking for some saves in this Cubs bullpen? Yeah, I think Wick's got to be the guy. Um, uh, David Ross was totally noncommittal uh, when he talked about it, but not only on Saturday, but really over the last couple of days, our colleagues, Patrick Mooney and Sahadev Sharma, who cover the Cubs, have been all over this, and uh, David Ross has clearly uh, been looking for something. I think his quote was, I'm just looking for someone to get out. So the bullpen has been a real mess for the Cubs um, all of this short season thus far, and Kimbrell has been the main focus of it. So I think it's safe to say that Kimbrell is out of the job, at least. Let's say this. I feel comfortable betting that that closer's job is not belong, does not belong to Craig Kimbrell anymore, even though we haven't heard that from David Ross. I think the, the comments he's made over the last couple of days and then the fact that they turned to Jeffress and Wick in that uh, close game against the Pirates on Saturday with Wick getting the save uh, tells you exactly where things stand in the Cubs' bullpen. So I think Wick is the guy. I think we can uh, comfortably assume that as we are making our fab bids today and I don't know. I think there's enough here to bet on him keeping the job for a long time. Uh, with all, you know, we talked a ton on Friday about these closer situations, and you know, we we went team by team by team. We were looking at you know, do you target this guy? Do you speculate on that guy? I think Wick out of this entire group of guys is probably the safest one. Probably the one who I would go after with the most confidence. Not only that he is going to give my team something, but that he's going to keep the closer's job for the rest of the year. Yeah, there's definitely a path for that to happen, and it's made me wonder is. Craig Kimbrell a cut this weekend whether you're adding Wick or not if you're just looking to make a move if you're adding Nate Pearson and you're trying to look at your roster and say who do I let go it's a short season you got to make difficult Mm -hmm. decisions I mean if this is it and you don't want to wait it out for another week or two to see how things go I completely understand I think you can justify cutting Craig Kimbrell I think our friend Scott Pianowski says this a lot if you're not cutting players and occasionally making a mistake you're probably not cutting enough players and that's kind of the line of thinking that you want to have as you make a decision with Kimbrell. He might not be your absolute best cut, but I wouldn't avoid going after some of the top end guys this week mm-hmm. simply because he's your second option to cut. Like right. he's worth letting go in a lot of formats. And if you got a deep bench, sure, reserve him, see what happens. I think if he's going to ever pull it back together, it's going to be with reduced usage of that fastball. He still has pretty good velocity, but it's just straight. Guys mm-hmm. just tee it up. And if he doesn't yeah. get down to like a 50-50 split, fastball, curveball, I'm not sure we're ever going to see Craig Kimbrell have a prolonged stretch of success in a closer role again. Yeah. 
I agree completely. And what concerns you even more about him is that uh, one outing against the Reds where it was just a nightmare where he had the four walks and the hit by pitch. He threw, I want to say the number was 12 knuckle curves and got zero swings, zero swings, not swings and misses, zero swings. And the Reds weren't even flinching at it, almost to the point where it concerns you if that he's tipping something. Because, I mean, they were just spitting on it time after time after time. And if that's not doing anything for him, if he is just throwing straight heat and a, a breaking ball that no one is going to swing at out of the zone, then he is in a real lot of trouble, and I think that's where we are with Craig Gimble right now. And even if he, re- if he reclaims the job, if he gets right and reclaims the job, you're still talking about two, two and a half weeks, something like that in this season where he's not really going to be giving you much of anything. I agree with you. Maybe it doesn't feel like the most comfortable cut on your team, but a guy who I would not be protecting this week if I wanted to go after other players. Let's talk about the situation in Houston. There was a game, was a featured game, I think, on the West Coast, the Fox Saturday night game of the week, uh, the Astros-Angels. First, we saw Hansel Robles come in and serve up a couple of home runs in a save situation and blow the save for the Angels. Then we saw Roberto Uzuna come in and actually leave with an injury. He had uh, what the Astros describing as right arm discomfort. And what happened was he threw a pitch, kind of walked around the mound a little bit. He was looking down at his forearm, and he was just gone. They cut to commercial. He was out of the game. He's going to have an MRI. I haven't seen results for that yet. It seems bad. It seems mm-hmm. like an automatic IL stint, even if it's relatively minor, even if it's inflammation or something else. But I would immediately speculate on Ryan Presley, and Presley had to leave this game, I think, because of a, a cut on his hand. Fortunately, that doesn't seem like an IL situation, sure. at least at this point. But... Ryan Presley has always shown the stuff to be a dominant reliever, like a one-for-one swap for Ozuna in terms of a guy that could give you elite ratios and maybe even strike more hitters out. I think the skills critique of Roberto Ozuna is just that the strikeout rate is okay or good for a closer, but it doesn't necessarily walk with the elite ratios that he's provided year over year over year. This is a guy that has a career 274 ERA and a .90 whip. I think Presley can match that, but he can also do it with a slightly higher K rate. Agree completely. Ryan Presley's one of those guys who I was going after even without him necessarily getting any save opportunities just because everything else he does for you in the K and ratio departments is so good. We've seen it now for a couple of years with him. You go back to 2018, had himself a very good season, 2.54 ERA. 1.13 whip, struck out 101 batters in 71 innings. Last year, guy made himself an all-star team as a middle reliever, as a setup man. I mean, even in this day and age, we're not seeing that a ton. And it's not like the Astros needed to uh, secure their one all-star. It's not like he was the token Astro all-star last year. They had a few other guys in that game also. But you've also had Ryan Presley in that uh, all-star game because he's just that good at his job. And I think he is going to flourish in whatever role he has for the Astros this season. And with what happened with the, to Ozuna on Saturday, it sure looks like Presley's going to move into a closer's role, feel very, very good about him. And again, even if Ozuna isn't injured, even if it just ended up being some fluke thing and he's able to be back you know, tomorrow or in a week or something like that, Ryan Presley gives you value because of the strikeouts he provides and the ratios he provides. We should be rewarding guys like this. We should want to play in fantasy leagues that let the Ryan Presleys of the world have value even without getting any saves. He already does that for you, and I think he's going to be getting some saves for you the rest of the year too. You know, One of these situations uh, could end up being a, a massive 
turn for anybody out there who's short on saves. You, you get a closer who gets mm. the job and just runs with it for most of the season. Uh, that could make a huge difference. So I think being a little aggressive both with Presley and Wick makes sense. How big is the number, though? We've, we've seen jobs change hands. When you get confirmation and you get that first save in before the weekend, sometimes it becomes like a 30 to 35% of the budget situation to actually have the winning bid, even though it seems so odd when we're talking about starting pitchers who go 15 to 20%, and they can have you know, just as much, if not more, of an impact depending on how things play out there. How aggressive are you going to be with Wick, and how aggressive are you going to be with Ryan Presley? Are they kind of a cut above these other relievers, or is it just a case where there's a huge pile of different arms you're thinking about, and they just happen to be at the top? I think they're one step above, and that's that's more about them than about the other guys. I just think that it looks pretty comfortable for them to be uh, to be lined up for saves. I guess right now I would feel better about uh, Rowan Wick than I would about Presley if I'm just talking straight up saves. It feels like he's got a better hold on the Cubs job than Wick ne- or than Presley necessarily has in Houston, unless we hear something about Osuna's injury. I think Presley's the better pitcher. I think Presley's the better bet to get you uh, the strikeouts and the ratios. So I feel good about both those guys. If you combine what they can both do, I think that they do deserve to be a cut above these other relievers that you might be looking at. So uh, that's uh, that's how I would be feeling going into my fab bits with these relief pitchers. So we put out a call for some questions this morning prior to recording. Simon wanted to know uh, who the closers are going to be for the Cubs and Astros. I think at this point we are in agreement that it's going to be Rowan Wick for the Cubs. It's going to be Ryan Presley for the Astros, mm-hmm. uh, assuming, of course, that Ozuna is going to miss at least some time with the injury that caused him to leave the game on Saturday night. Uh, but the other question that Simon sent us, any other closer candidates to jump on now? And I think this is where we do have a few other options. We dabbled with a few of these guys on Friday. James Karinchak, the Indians haven't had another save chance since the one that he finished out. I think that was back on Thursday. So maybe we get one Sunday. Maybe we get a little mm-hmm. clarification on how they see things. And it'll be with a more rested Brad Hand, I believe, at this point, too, because we haven't seen Brad Hand pitch in a game uh, since that meltdown against the White Sox earlier in the week. Uh, so we'll, we'll know. Like if, if he's good to go, he'll get the opportunity. If he's not, if they don't want him to get the opportunity, they'll go another direction. Uh, we did see Kirby Yates get pulled during a save opportunity. And Drew Pomeranz, you know, he's kind of like Presley, where I think he's good enough to be rostered in a lot of leagues, even if he's not the guy. But we're starting to get some hints that maybe Drew Pomeranz is the next guy up in that loaded San Diego bullpen if the Padres make a change. There's not really an indication yet from Jace Tingler that they're on the cusp of doing that, but it's a lot easier, as we just described, with the possible bids for Wick and Presley being at least 20% of a budget, if not in that higher end, like 30% range. You can save a lot by going cheap a week early, and I think when you do that, you always want to try and get someone that you're just comfortable starting anyway, and Drew Pomeranz Mm -hmm. absolutely fits that description. Yeah, he really does. I would bet that this doesn't end up happening. I think that San Diego is one of those teams that knows how to use its bullpen very smartly and has the arms in the bullpen to be able to go in a lot of different directions. And I would still bet on Kirby Yates being able to find it and being the guy in the ninth inning for that team. But Pomeranz has been so good in this role for a long time now. I think he should be someone who uh, is owned across the board. It surprises me how unowned some of these guys are. And I, I know that saves are everything. And I know that uh, not every fantasy league is going to reward players like Pomeranz the way that I believe they should. 
but he just does so much for you in those K and ratio categories that I feel very good about having him on my team. Saves, no saves, whatever. And as you said, it uh, does seem like at least if a change is made, maybe Pomeranz is the guy. We would probably would have bet on Emilio Pagan being that guy at the start of the season, but maybe it will be Pomeranz. It certainly seems like if a change is made, he's first in line to take over the ninth. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And uh, there's the situation in Anaheim that we should definitely get to. I mentioned that both teams had, had some closer issues with the Ozuna injury and then, of course, with Robles serving up a couple of home runs in the top of the ninth against Houston. If the Angels make a change, and so far no indication that they're on the brink of doing that, but it's time to start speculating. It's time to uh, try and throw a dart or two in this bullpen who are you most interested in? Because there's two guys that sort of stand out to me. I think Ty Buttry, who I waited on for most of last season, uh, he's pretty interesting. He's off to a bumpy start so far. He's given up three runs in three and a third innings. Uh, he's walked three guys, only struck out one. And then there's Keenan Middleton, who also has been hit a little bit. Three Ks, one walk, but six hits allowed in two and a third innings. Like Those were my first two options, and <laughs> I don't feel great about either of them. I've seen Cam Bedrosian get up and, and get into some games or at least warm up in a few random spots. He's actually been more effective than Buttry and Middleton early on. Uh, so it's going to be a cheap bid if I do take right. any chances here, more of like a contingency, throw in almost a single-digit bid in a $1,000 budget or 15 out of 1000 or something pretty small. But I'm still not even sure almost 12 hours before this thing's going to run where I'm actually going to throw those darts right now. Yeah, I think even though he's been pretty bad this year, if I was going to throw one of these darts, I would lean toward Budry. And I guess the main reason is that we've seen him most recently of the three non-Robles guys you mentioned be a very good relief pitcher. And so I, I, that's why I lean in his direction, but I don't feel great about any of them, right? I mean, I don't think we should have any reason. I'm not reading too much into the early season success of Cam Pedrosen. You know, we've seen this movie before with him, and I just don't want to get into bed with that necessarily. I would lean toward Buttry, uh, but still, like you said, I think you're right. I, it's worth speculating on this job. It's worth picking a guy and running with him, but don't go too crazy with this bit. If I had to make a bet right here today, I would still bet on Hansel Robles be in the closer a week from now. I still think that he has done enough for this team to not be pushed out of the job because of a rocky outing here or there to start the season. And a key difference here, while we're talking about spending probably 5 to 7% of a budget at the highest end on a guy like yes. Krinchak or Pomeran, someone who's more usable, you know, you're not looking at these Angels relievers as viable lineup fillers if they're not getting saves. I think the right. gap between Robles and the field might force the Angels to be even more patient than they'd like to be. Some opportunities to get well, a three-game series at Seattle to begin the week, and then a three-game road series against Texas. So not a terrible stretch of schedule, albeit six on the road for the upcoming week. So, yeah, I'm with you. Buttry's the guy if I'm going to just take a chance, but it's a very low, near-min sort of bid. Uh, are you doing anything with that Seattle bullpen where <laughs> roles have just been tumbling around like crazy we talked about kansas city's bullpen i think on friday's show a little bit yeah. too it seems like both of those situations are fluid in the case of seattle there are even fewer guys that i really like i mean i think once austin adams comes back i think he has the skills to kind of stand out and just solidify this ongoing committee battle that the mariners have uh, developing in their ninth inning mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I know Al's already sick of hearing this. You're probably sick of hearing this from me now, too. But if you can't contribute to me beyond saves, then I really don't want to chase saves. I mean, I don't like chasing saves in most years. I hate chasing saves this year. If I'm going to speculate on a guy, it's got to be someone like Pomerantz. It's got to be someone like Karinczak. If he doesn't get the job, I know he's still going to do something for me. I don't see anyone in Seattle, A, as that brand of pitcher, or B, uh, some being someone who is in a position where I feel good about him locking down that ninth inning role, and not just this week, but really at any time this season. So I will let someone else dabble in that Seattle bullpen. Yeah, I think you're wise to uh, let someone else <laughs> chase those saves and, and possibly take on that ratio damage along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fun. We're like 40 minutes into the pod, and we haven't even talked about a hitter yet. But the list of hitters that we're interested in this week is a bit shorter than that list of pitchers. Uh, we did have another top prospect get called up. Nick Madrigal has debuted with the White Sox. I think he's kind of fascinating because he strikes out very little, but he also doesn't hit the ball very hard. And if he finds a way to get on base, he could be a great source of stolen bases. I've uh, started both games since coming up. I think he went 0 for 5 on Saturday night in a game which the White Sox put 11 runs on the board. So he's still looking for that first big league hit after two games. Uh, but I don't know. Like I see him as like a middle infield speed flyer at this point. I mean, if you are in a shallow enough league where he wasn't already stashed and you lost Lorenzo Cain with Cain deciding to opt out this weekend mm-hmm. or Isan Diaz in a deeper league, you know, as a filler. Like I would assume that Madrigal's probably already owned in a league where Isan Diaz was relevant, at least a deep mix league, of course. So I'm not sure how much he's going to give you. I think he might be stuck in the bottom of this order for a little while too, yeah. Beller. This was part of the reason why I didn't have Nick Madrigal on my bench already in redraft leagues because I figured when he did get that early call up, it was going to take him some time to potentially make his way up in the order. Exactly what I was going to say, that he's just not going to uh, move up in this order at all. Um, it's just it's just not happening. It, it's flat out not happening this year. I mean, it, it, for a number of reasons. Number one, this is a loaded White Sox lineup. Number two, uh, when I did the uh, Beat Writer series way back in March with all of our beat writers and talked to James Fegan about the White Sox, uh, he pointed out that you know, Tim Anderson was on his way to winning a batting title, and Rick Renneria was still sticking him in the bottom third of the order last year. It's just that he's a stubborn manager who isn't necessarily going to change uh, the way he looks at a youngster, no matter what he does. So I don't think there's really any hope this year for Nick Madrigal moving into the top of the lineup or you know out of the bottom third of the lineup maybe even out of the nine hole period and so that lack of plate appearances that is going to come that is you know incumbent upon anyone who does end up hitting ninth for an entire season makes it a little harder to get excited about him I think you got him pegged correctly he's going to give you some speed he's a nice guy to go after for that middle infield spot even though he's hitting ninth I do like being invested in this White Sox lineup, especially with Luis Robert potentially moving to the top of the lineup uh, for good uh, now. Uh, so he'll have guys like that right behind him, Luis Robert, Yoan Moncada, and he'll I think he'll have some run scoring opportunities with those guys coming up right behind him when you turn the lineup over, but still not someone who I'm going to get super excited about this year. I think we're more talking about 2021 as the year Nick Madrigal is really a big fantasy impact player. Yeah, I, I'm with you there, and I'm probably at like a 5% bid in leagues where he's available because of the playing time. I don't know if they even want him in a 12-team league. I mm-hmm. think it's mostly 15 teams and deeper early on for uh, Nick Madrigal. I actually think there are some unheralded names on this list who will go for less in Fab, who I probably like better. If you're just looking at middle infielders alone, J.P. Crawford is playing every day, and he's mm-hmm. hitting high in the order for Seattle. Mm-hmm. And the top part of that order is at least somewhat interesting. We've talked a lot about the Mariners with Shed Long and Kyle Lewis. 
Kyle Seeger still has a little something left in the tank. So at least the first four or five hitters in the Seattle lineup are, are competent. And J.P. Crawford, for everybody out there, of course, you've heard the name for years. You were probably disappointed because he was pretty high on prospect list for a long time, and he just hasn't really delivered on that hype. From day one, he was probably always a better real-life prospect than a fantasy prospect because he plays a good shortstop. He's more hit tool over power, doesn't steal a ton of bases, but he's got a couple of steals here early on, hitting 364 with a 475 OBP and a 515 slug through nine games. So a really nice start to the season for J.P. Crawford. I mean, if you're looking at Crawford versus Madrigal, who do you like better the rest of the way? I like Crawford better. I just feel better about um, everything that he has going for him minus the lineup, and that's certainly not enough of a reason to bump Madrigal over him. The two steals are nice. I mean, he said he's probably not going to run much, but he's running right now. He's got the two steals, and maybe that's an indication that he wants to run more, that Scott Service is going to let him run more than any previous manager uh, ever did or any previous you know regime let him run. He's got the legs underneath him to run and you've talked about the fact that you know we've been disappointed by him in the fantasy world and that we've heard the name a ton maybe makes you think that he's a little older than the 25 years old that he actually is so this is a guy who even if things had been going right for him over the last few years at least offensively like you said a really nice glove at shortstop even if things were going right for him offensively over the last few years we would still be expecting him to grow a little bit grow mentally grow physically and so I think that these things are coming together for him at the right time I would definitely rather have Crawford on my teams than Madrigal really without having to think twice about it. Yeah, Crawford riding a six-game hitting streak entering Sunday's game as well. And again, hitting first or second in the order on a pretty regular basis. Uh, not striking out a lot. That's that's mm-hmm. the key, I think, right now, is that the plate skills seem to be pretty good. Good things happen when uh, you put balls in play that much and you have a spot at the top of the order. Uh, the interesting name on the list this week is very unexpected. Ben Gamble is a guy that I was never really excited about until recently. He's got a path to playing time now. I mean, Lorenzo Cain was going to play pretty much every day for the Brewers because of his defense, and it looked like he was having a little bit of a rebound at the plate in the early days of the season as well, but understandably opting out. And Ben Gamble is the most likely candidate to at least pick up the extra playing time even if they change the configuration of the outfield mm-hmm. and run Avi Garcia out there in center field. But this is, a, this is a big hit for the Brewers' pitchers to lose Lorenzo Cain's defense in center field. The opportunity here for Gamble, I think, is one that I I didn't expect until recently, though, because he changed his swing, and it does look a lot more like the Christian Yelich setup and swing. Apparently, that was not by design. That was more by accident. They just made some tweaks, and and that's where he ended up. But you start tweaking things, and you start swinging the bat, and you look like Christian Yelich. That's not the worst thing that's ever happened. Uh, We have seen uh, a couple things that have stood out already in just eight batted balls. Ben Gamble has two barrels already this season. He only had eight all of last season. <laughs> so he's hitting the ball harder. 91 average exit velocity. Again, we're talking about a tiny, tiny sample. Uh, the launch angle is way up. He just looks like a different hitter. And in Milwaukee especially, if he's going to be on the big side of a platoon, that's going to play in deeper mixed leagues. I don't think people are going to be that excited about him this weekend. I think you could sneak him in cheap. And you might be surprisingly rewarded compared to the player he's been for most of his career there might be some power that has been unlocked with Ben Gamble. You know, baseball, we are inherently dealing in small sample sizes and sample sizes that are hard to compare back over a player's career. So it helps to look not only at the numbers, but at 
really substantive reasons for change. And all those changes you mentioned that he has made in his setup and his swing are substantive changes, are those meaningful changes that we see from players. So can we say he is now doing this and this is leading to that? I don't think we can say that with any degree of confidence yet. But what we can say is that these changes are meaningful and they could be leading to these different results that we've seen. That combined with the increase in playing time with Lorenzo Cain opting out is definitely enough for me to want to throw some bids on him this weekend. I think the other thing you can keep in mind, too, is you throw those bids out. If you're in a league with twice weekly changes, the Brewers are going to face three lefties out of four games against the White Sox to begin the week. So that could be the one thing that that tempers Gamble's short-term playing time. You get him in for the Friday series against the Reds. We have Three righty starters all lined up there, so you should start all three of those games. You should get three of four to begin the following week and probably at least two of three the following weekend against the Cubs. So it's going to be in leagues where you can deal with a big side platoon player, but he's at least rosterable, and I don't think in the past he was rosterable outside of NL-only formats. He's actually kind of comparable in terms of my expectations to Nick Markakis, who opted back into the season, which... That I didn't see happening this week. No. I, I thought we were going in the direction. I thought more players were going to opt out in the wake of what was happening with the Marlins to start the week, with a lot of teams getting placed on hold. Uh, instead, Nick Markakis back in the fold. I think he's still more of a fourth outfielder, big side platoon-ish type guy. We just haven't seen that much game power. The lineup is good, though. So having mm-hmm. exposure to the Atlanta lineup is a good thing, even when you're talking about a guy that doesn't bring even more than like 15 home run power over a typical full season. How do you stack up Gamble versus Marcakis at this point? I think I like Marcakis a little bit better. It sounds like I'm a little bit higher on Marcakis than you are. You mentioned the fact that he doesn't bring a ton of game power. 15 homers over 162 is probably the ceiling, but that's not nothing. He hit the 14 in 2018. He had nine in 116 games played last year, and you know that the rates are going to be there. You play in a batting average league, you play in an OBP league, whatever it is, Nick Markakis is going to increase your ratio bottom line. So I like that, and I love the lineup, of course, with Atlanta too. Um, you know, I'm not going crazy for him, but uh, I do think that he is going to give you plenty of value. The Braves certainly are happy to get him back. The fact that he's opting in shows you exactly where he is standing. Uh, in this season and where he's uh, how he's feeling about the rest of the year so I don't know I feel pretty decent about him I think that this is someone who uh, would have been easily drafted across the board had he not opted out in the first place and so I think we should treat him from that standpoint treat him like the player that we would have had he been uh, with this Atlanta team all season I I, I think I uh, yeah I would be going after him better than or higher than Gamble with a little bit more aggressiveness and I think uh, he's someone who is going to be a fixture of starting lineups in 15 team leagues the rest of the way. I think just for the sake of bidding, I'm looking at maybe like 2 to 3% on Gamble with a slight up arrow, and I could go similar with Marquecas. I don't know if I'd go much more, even though there's a much better track record yeah. there. The way I'm looking at the schedule this week, too, six righties in seven games for the Braves, only Hinge and Ryu as the only lefty they're supposed to face uh, coming up on Wednesday, so it could be a, a busy week for Nick Marquecas. The other hitter who I thought was kind of interesting uh, it was Bradley Zimmer, just kind of throwing him into the outfield bucket. He's finally healthy, which is a, a big part of Zimmer just having any sort of presence in the lineup at all. He's played eight games so far this year, has a homer, has a steal. He's drawn a couple of walks, so the slash line looks pretty good early. You know, you look at where they're going to hit him in the order. Six is probably the best-case scenario. Bottom third is more likely just because they've got a pretty good 
top five, top six they can run out there every mm-hmm. single day. Uh, but what's your interest level in Bradley Zimmer now that he finally appears to be over the injuries that have really plagued him for the better part of the last two years? Well, my uh, number one feeling about Bradley Zimmer is that he's taken way too much playing time away from my guy Oscar Mercado. That's been my Bradley Zimmer experience thus far in 2020. <laughs> but taking me out of the equation and just thinking about Zimmer, I think a little less than uh, than Gamble and Marcakis is where I am at on him. He is healthy, but we uh, have seen a lot of injuries from him in the past and not a ton of even performance from him when he has been healthy either. There is still Oscar Mercado there. He's not going to play every single day for this Cleveland team. I think the the playing time for him is a little less certain than it is for both Gamel and Marcakis at this point. I like the, the 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 skills better, at least on Marcakis for sure. So if we're thinking two to three percent with an up arrow on uh, those two guys, then I'm thinking more in like the one one and a half percent range for Zimmer. Yeah, I think he's worth having on your list, at least as a contingency bid, though, because of that combination of tools. And it is weird to see uh, Oscar Mercado not just being locked in the lineup every day. But the big blow to the value of Oscar Mercado was something that there was at least a bit of a warning about. Cesar Hernandez has been the leadoff hitter for this team every game he started. I think he started 8 of 9 the one day he had off. Oscar Mercado hit ninth, and... Uh, just the fact that Mercado hasn't played every day on top of losing that hold on the leadoff spot, that has been disappointing to say the least. So I still do believe in the talent of Oscar Mercado, but he, in a shallow league, like a 10 or a 12 team league, might be an early season drop that I did not expect to be talking about in that light. Uh, we have an outfield question from Aaron on Twitter. He wants to know how much to bid on Jacoby Jones and Teoscar Hernandez in leagues where they're available. Are they similar to the guys we're talking about or in the case of at least Hernandez do you see more to get excited about because of the power he brings to the table yeah I'm uh, I'm pretty excited about both these guys which is something I didn't expect myself to be saying uh just a couple of weeks ago I do like Hernandez a little bit better uh for the exact reason you mentioned uh the power that he brings to the table and that we've seen it right I mean this is something that we've seen for a few years it feels like when you look at these two guys that Hernandez's power is the most singular, bettable skill that either of them bring. And when we're talking about guys like this, when we're talking about guys who, you know, even though they both have started hot, you're maybe thinking that if they just uh, contribute on the fringes the rest of the season, I'm okay with that, then I want to look for the most bettable skill. They obviously have holes in their game, and you are saying by going after them that you're okay with their holes, right? I think Hernandez's power is the surest thing that either of them have, and because of that, I'm more interested in him. But I can see myself being interested in both these guys, certainly. Uh, They deserve credit for the starts they've had to this season. Yeah, I think with Hernandez, you kind of know what you're going to get. Probably a low average, you know, Mm -hmm. decent OBP, walks a little bit, uh, occasional steals to go with it. I mean, I, I wouldn't... I would not write this off as a total fluke. I think when you look at him compared to Gamble and Marquez, I'm actually a little more interested in Hernandez, where they're all available. I think you could push maybe a, a seven to nine percent bid out there. Uh, he's not going to be a part of the column. I don't think he's available in quite enough leagues to include him, but I definitely think he's worth thinking about in all those leagues where he's available. Jacoby Jones is a guy that I'm surprised the Tigers continue to give opportunities to. He's a great defender in center field. Right. At least he makes highlight real plays. It seems like on a pretty regular basis and. He is off to a scorching start so far. Uh, doesn't have quite the same eye at the plate that Hernandez does. Did push the walk rate up a little bit last year, but for his career, he's been closer to the 5% range, so maybe last year was an outlier. He's barreled up a ton of balls early on. Uh, three homers in just 28 plate appearances. 
is there anything here? Like, is he actually 12-team, five-outfielder league viable, or is he more like a 15-team league guy at this point? Still think he's more a 15-team guy at this point. We don't want to go too crazy. I mean, we've seen Jacoby Jones coming into this season for, what, about a 1,000 plate appearances of his career. So even though he has started this season hot, I think we know what he is. I still think it's uh, a more of a 15-team situation. I really wouldn't think about him in anything shallower than that. Yeah, for now, he's stuck in the nine spot in the order. Eight straight starts, but all of those coming at the very bottom of that Tigers lineup. So uh, more of a min-bid sort of player for me where interested. I think there's a pretty big gap between Jones and Teoscar Hernandez and a lot of the other outfielders we talked about would be uh, in between in terms of priorities with 3 to 5% range bids kind of at the highest end, probably more like 2 to 3% for most of the outfielders we discussed today. Uh, also should point out, too, when the Marlins resume, John Birdie, who didn't really have playing time before, he might be interesting again. Like mm-hmm. He started this draft season way, way back in November as kind of an interesting middle infield a speed target around that pick 200, 225 range. Dropped off because of the way that team came together. It looked like he was without a job, but with all the attrition on that roster, given the outbreak of the pandemic, or the, the virus, rather, John Birdie actually could have a place to play again, so I wouldn't wouldn't forget about him. And part of the reason you might forget about him is because he's only played two games. So if you're sorting by stats, he's going to be buried on every single stats leaderboard that you look at. Yeah, um, and, and an intriguing player who's going to play pretty much every day uh, for his team going forward when they're able to get back on the field. So uh, obviously everything is a uh, moving picture this season. Everything uh, is going to change the equation day by day. But Birdie is someone who I would have on my list too. Still probably behind the guys that we've talked about, but someone who I do think is worth a contingency bid. Yeah, I, I think Birdie versus J.P. Crawford is actually kind of interesting. The desperation for speed might make me... A little more aggressive with Birdie in some places, but I'm not going overboard with the bids in either of those cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two more questions to get to. JLD wants to know, would you drop Austin Riley for any one of Jonathan Scope, AJ Pollock, David Fletcher, Brian Goodwin, or Ian Happ? This is a Mm 13-team Yahoo League with daily moves. Austin Riley off to a sluggish start. He's got one homer in seven games, but eight strikeouts, only two walks. Playing time, maybe with Marcakis back on the roster, they move some guys around a little bit. Maybe that's something that starts to fall off just a little bit for Austin Riley. So is he a cut this week? Yeah, too much swing and miss in the game for me to get really excited about. And there are a couple of options who jumped out at me as you were reading that list. One of them's David Fletcher. Love the flexibility. Joe Madden seems to say something good about him every single day of his life. I mean, going back to when Madden first took the job, <laughs> uh, we know he loves players like David Fletcher. David Fletcher is going to get plenty of playing time. He gets on base a ton. Obviously, not a whole lot of power in the game, but he does so much, uh, and he gets to hit uh, toward the top of the order for the Angels quite a bit. So he is someone who I would go after. And Ian Happ uh, is another one who jumped out at me, uh, the the power and the patience the plate discipline have always been there for him swing and miss is going to be part of the game but it's less part of his game this year and really going back to last year he seemed to correct some things when he got sent down and spent quite a bit of time in the minors last season looks like a different hitter looks like a better more rounded hitter Um, and he's also a guy who I don't think you really have to worry about playing time with not going to play every day but I bet if we look up uh, at the end of the season and the Cubs are able to play 60 games I bet Ian Happ's got 50 starts yeah, I think that's definitely the way he's tracking at this point. And with Riley, I think now Johan Camargo is going to push him out of the lineup a little more often. Mm-hmm. Marcakis being part of the outfield DH mix means that 
he's now in a competition with two guys for those spots, even though he can play two. So for now, I think he is cuttable in most mixed leagues. Thanks for the question, JLD. we got one more question to get to. This one comes from James. In the shortened season, in shallower redraft leagues, uh, would you now cut struggling established guys who would normally uh, exercise patience? So Hinjin Ryu in favor of a Spencer Turnbull, a Christian Javier, or a Garrett Richards was the specific question. Ryu is a guy that I'm probably not cutting, Beller. I think the skills there are great. I think it's a frustrating first couple turns in the Jays rotation for him, and he's a cut above where I would be aggressive. I think if you get down to the next tier of pitchers below that, um, kind of after that pick 150 range, maybe around that time if I had a struggling starter, I would go ahead and, and make a move. I do like everybody you mentioned. I like Turnbull. I like mm-hmm. Javier. I like mm-hmm. Richards. I think they're all in like a 12-team league or even a 10-team league. Very rosterable at this point. But reuse not my cut to get there. Agree with you completely. Um, and it's crazy that guys like that are rosterable really across the board. So it, I say crazy because it makes you itchy to make moves for them because you want those guys on your team. You want to find ways to get them on your team, and I totally understand that impulse. I guess the way you have to look at it is is that if Hyunjin Ryu is the guy you're looking to cut, then you're doing pretty well at the pitcher spot anyways. I would not be dropping him for those guys, but I would look around the rest of my roster. Maybe there's something else you've got that you can get rid of uh, to get one of those guys or two of those guys on your team because I do think that they are all worth owning in basically every single fantasy baseball format we've got. One follow-up question on Ryu. His next start is probably going to be at Atlanta on Wednesday. Is that a bench scenario? Even if you're keeping him, are you reserving him for that start and then rolling him out there the following time out with the Jays having a home matchup against the Marlins that will likely go to Ryu? Nah, maybe this is uh, you know sort of uh, low-level thinking on my part, so I apologize in advance if it is. But guys <laughs> like Hyunjin Ryu, I don't, I don't bench. I don't sit him. I trust him. He's been so good the last few years. Uh, things have not started great for him. Atlanta is not necessarily a great matchup. But pitchers like him are good because they don't need great matchups to succeed. I'm still rolling him out there. I still feel very confident. If you are listening and you're in any of my leagues and you've got Hyunjin Ryu, we can talk if you are afraid about starting him against Atlanta. All right, so you're looking at him as more of a, a buy low, someone you're trading for yeah. uh, where you can. Uh, we did it a couple drops along the way, kind of in passing. We talked about Craig Kimbrell. I would say Forrest Whitley, if you're holding him in a redraft league, it just mm-hmm. doesn't look like it's going to happen for him. Arm trouble, again, while he's on the, the alternate camp roster. and They've had a need. They haven't brought him up, so I think it's pretty safe in a redraft league to let him go. Unfortunately, it looks like injuries are going to scuttle another season for Forrest Whitley. Thanks a lot for the questions today, too. It's always good to get those. You can send those our way on Twitter. He's at M. Beller. I'm at Derek Van Riper. We're happy to take those every Sunday. And, of course, if you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, 40% off at theathletic.com slash podcast is the way to go. For Michael Beller, I'm Derek Van Riper. We're back Wednesday with Under the Radar. Uh-huh.